nice if we could have our cake and eat it Though that's impossible to do I'm J.R. Woodward, welcome to our social landscape where my guest is Noam Chomsky Speaking to people leading up to the interview, I encountered many folks who knew his name but didn't know much about him, so I'll do a very brief overview here, which will certainly fall well short of doing justice to his long and illustrious career. The author of almost 150 books, Chomsky is a laureate professor at the University of Arizona, an emeritus professor at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where he taught for nearly 50 years. Considered the founder of modern linguistics, he is known for his groundbreaking theories on universal grammar, famously termed the Chomsky hierarchy. He is also an influential cognitive scientist, political historian, philosopher, and a prolific critic of American foreign and domestic policy, which is where most of my questions for him arose. Finally, he's the most cited living academic worldwide and is arguably the most influential thinker of our time. At 93, he shows no signs of slowing down as he continues to write and lecture. As he likes to say, he follows what he calls the bicycle theory. If you keep going fast, you don't fall off. Professor Chomsky, welcome to our social landscape. Thank you for joining me. Very glad to be with you. Before we jump into the the nitty-gritty, maybe just uh, quickly a biographical question I would ask. How you define yourself at this point after all the different... Uh, hats you've worn. Uh, I told my 22-year-old daughter in California that I was interviewing you, and she said, oh, cool, what's his story? So if you look it up, <laughs> you know, she can find renowned political dissident, anarcho-syndicalist, social critic, philosopher, political activist, essayist, cognitive scientist, you know, of course, linguist. But what do you, what do you hang your hat on, if I was to answer that question? How do you primarily see yourself at, at this point? Well, perhaps I can answer with an anecdote. Uh, Some years back, there was a collection of essays by philosophers uh, devoted to critical analysis of ideas of mine. And one of the contributors, philosopher friend, complained that it's difficult to discuss my ideas because the only ism I seem willing to commit myself to is truism. Oh, all right. Really that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Chomskyism or gnomism. Uh, I, I read you uh, an interview a while ago. You said that you you are an activist because you feel you need to be, but intellectual interest is still with linguistics. Is that is that true? Or do you have an intellectual interest in, in watching all these uh, things going on in society as well? What's going on in the world is of supreme importance, but it's not of any very great intellectual depth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What we see on the surface is pretty much what's happening. There's no deep theories about it. Uh, There are some things that are not totally obvious, but you can dig them out by looking at historical patterns, a documentary record, and so on. It's, It's a lot of work, and it takes thought not uh, uh, intellectually vacuous by any means, but it's not not very profound. If you look at international relations theory, it's a very important topic, but there's nothing deep about the theories. It's not a criticism. I mean, if you look at the whole range of human activity, human inquiry from, say, physics up through 
of the literature, what you find is regularly that the, the narrower the topic of inquiry, the deeper the theories. Mm-hmm. So a physicist finds a molecule that's too complicated, hand it over to the chemists. Too complicated for the chemists, they call it biology. Too complicated for them, they call it sociology. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and we end up with literature. <laughs> Um, thank you. In your so, if we move into some, uh, the the meat of this, in your opinion, Professor, what is the relationship between our current levels of inequality, broadly defined, and democracy? Do we still have democracy? Have we ever had democracy? Um, in the tragedy of American diplomacy, that William Appleman Williams worried that the citizens' role would be reduced to saying yes or no to choices defined and presented by others or to agitating for essentially secondary benefits within the imperial way of life. And I think, shit, isn't that already kind of how it is or how it's been for a while? Have we seen a period of time where um, democracy has not been significantly influenced by inequality, or is this a, a particularly unique time right now? Well, both. It's a particularly unusual time now, but an unusual example of what's always been the case. So let's go back to the founding fathers. They were very much opposed to democracy. It wasn't secret. It was quite open. Democracy for them meant mob rule. Uh, for Madison, the main framer, the, the prime task of government was, as he put it, to protect the minority of the opulent against the majority. He's famous for opposing factionalism, but that had a special meaning the kind of factionalism which would threaten the rights of property owners. Mm-hmm. Property owners, of course, meant slaveholders. Right. Constitution was written, after all, by a small group of wealthy white men, mostly slave owners. Very interesting, very in- interesting group. When you read the debates in the Constitutional Convention, it's orders of magnitude in the uh, sophistication beyond what we're used to today. Yeah, sure. The conceptions were quite clear. In fact, the main scholarly work, the gold standard in scholarship about the Constitutional Convention and uh, Michael Clarman's studies called the Framers Coup, Hmm. the coup against democracy, Hmm. the general population, those backwards people, the rabble, they wanted actual democracy. The people who were carrying out Shays' Rebellion and so on. You know, the framers were very opposed to this, devised the Constitution in ways which would reduce the threats of popular uh, involvement. So in the constitutional framework, the Senate was the main system of power. And the, system, and the Senate was not elected wasn't elected until, I think, 1913 or so. The, uh, and then it was set up so that it represents, as Madison put it, the wealth of the nation, okay. the more responsible group of men, mm-hmm. those who have understanding of the needs of property owners and their rights. That's the Senate. The House, uh, Madison wanted large areas for, for representation in the house. And if you go back to those that period, 
people couldn't travel very far. Right. Travel, first of all, you're working all day, can't take off time. So it's a horseback ride away from where you live. Mm-hmm. It means if you have a large congressional district, people can't get together. Right, it's right. part of the reason for the large district. And many other devices were, there was a huge debate at the Constitutional Convention about paper money. You look at the Constitution itself, it's banned. That was a huge issue. And mm-hmm. during the Revolutionary War, speculators were making a mint by uh, People like Robert Mars uh, ended up in jail because of uh, the, the corruption he was engaged in. He became super rich by speculation. And the people who had to pay the debts wanted paper money, which would devalue the cost of the debt. Speculators, of course, wanted hard currency. They wanted to be paid back in full. So a major debate about that. These are all things in the main things in the Constitutional Convention. So that it starts, the country starts with a sharp class division. Property owners, of course, male, women didn't participate. They were not considered persons at the time. They were property under Jewish common law. Obviously not slaves, obviously not Native Americans. Right. Uh, in fact, not even poor whites. So that was the ruling caste, if you like. Mm-hmm. Uh, the divisions the sh- divisions were not as sharp as they are today. So a property owner and a workman that might live in the same district, and that has a big effect. It's different now. Yeah. It's one of the reasons, the problems with the school district. Right. They're based on property taxes. So in rich areas... They have pretty good schools. Poor areas, you know, money for them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, things yeah. like that were mm-hmm. less apparent in the somewhat more mixed earlier society. Well, the framers' coup took place. The population didn't like it. Uh, the Bill of Rights was instituted in order to try to placate the opponents of the federalist system. Uh, and then there was huge struggles went on, no point reviewing it, but all through American history, there have been struggles about this up and back. Sure. So to take my lifetime, say, my childhood was a time of intense struggle about this. My early childhood was a depression, the depths of depression, mm-hmm. a bitter struggle about a class struggle with the revival of the labor movement would have been crushed by Wilson, revived, labor action, uh, sympathetic administration uh, uh, led to the New Deal measures, which were very significant, not just for the United States. Well, Europe was collapsing into fascism. The United States was leading the way to social democracy, picked up later in Europe, uh, but and business was strongly opposed. They had to back back off at the time. It was actually split. There were elements of the business world which were supportive. High-tech, capital-intensive, internationally-oriented business was sympathetic to the New Deal. They were happy to have a well-regulated labor force with fairly decent conditions. 
capital labor intensive domestically oriented industry and national association of manufacturers bitterly opposed and tried to block it. Well, this conflict was put on hold during the Second World War, but right after the war, the business world launched a huge offensive against New Deal measures. Took a long time to succeed, but finally succeeded with Reagan. Since then, it's just been bitter class war. This common and called neoliberalism, which mostly means bitter class war, <laughs> and it's led to extreme inequality of a kind that may have existed during the Gilded Age, but out of control. It's led to social disorder, social collapse, anger, resentment, sort of where the Trump phenomenon comes from. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's the result. And there are actually some measures of it. Uh, the Rand Corporation tried to do a study of uh, transfer of wealth to the top 1% of the population during the 40 years since Reagan. It's about $50 trillion. That's pretty effective cross war. Right, and right, it, right. It, it, wow. It's not any. <laughs> it's all right. It's, it's and what a... does this have to do with democracy? Well, the more wealth is concentrated, the lower the expectations for democracy sure. is more up to. I mean, business is always pretty much running the government, but in these conditions, it's just overwhelming. Mm-hmm. The counter forces, like the labor movement, which is destroyed. In fact, Reagan's first action was to attack labor, undermine it. Clinton took over the same thing. Mm-hmm. And you can't have people can't have a way to defend themselves during class war. Mm-hmm. So it's democracy's declined sharply. By now, of course, it's even worse. The Republican Party, since which used to be a political party, a normal political party, literally has just gone off the rails. They don't even try. Uh, it's been particularly under McConnell. It's just yeah. the only goal is take power no matter what yeah. and yeah. serve your masters, the rich and corporates. Right, Nothing right. else matters. And it's just uh, organized a raging insurgency, which is... In fact, they're quite openly, not even concealing it, trying to undermine and destroy democracy. That, that's a nice segue into what I have written down next, because it's about current legislation. Um, in the Requiem for the American Dream, you state there's always been this pressure for freedom and democracy coming from below and efforts at elite control and domination coming from above. And you talked about the... Um, the left and right's reaction to the democratizing 60s and whatnot, um, and about the youth. And so, you know, the, some of this current legislation going on all around, but particularly here in Florida with uh, our Republican-controlled legislature and Ron DeSantis, the governor, passing so many bills about education lately with the Don't Say Gay bill, the forbidding teaching of critical race theory, even though it's never been on the curriculum to begin with. I read recently that Texas is considering legislation requiring slavery to be called involuntary relocation, current wave of book banning. Is this just another example of that push and, push and shove that you're speaking about, the controlling of the indoctrination of the youth? This is parallel 
to interacting with, but parallel to the sharp concentration of wealth and power, one of its aspects is to make sure that you have an ignorant, atomized uh, population which offers no resistance to what you're doing. Marx had a term for this in the mid-19th century when he was criticizing the uh, autocratic rulers of uh, Europe. He said they want to turn the population into a sack of potatoes. <laughs> Ignorant, stupid, atomized, mm-hmm. can't get together. That's very natural. It goes all the way back through history. Find the same thing in 17th century England. Try to ensure that the rabble, as they were called, don't get involved in things. Yeah. Uh, they're to the side there. It's actually ex- extends to liberal democratic theory as well. So you take the leading liberal intellectuals who wrote about educational theory, political democracy, and so on. Not 100% of them, not John Dewey put him to the side, but people like uh, Walter Lippmann, Harold Laswell, founder of modern political science, uh, Reinhold Niebuhr. Uh, Their idea was, as Lippmann put it, that the population are have to be observers, not participants. As he put it pretty graphically, he said, we, the responsible men, have to be protected from the trampling and the roar of the bewildered herd. Oh, wow. Those who Niebuhr called too stupid and ignorant to not understand what they're doing. For their own good, we have to uh-huh. impose necessary illusions, uh, uh, emotionally sim- simple, uh, attractive slogans so that they are pacified and keep away from us. It's basically the ideology of the founders, but adapted to the 20th century. Notice I'm quoting the liberals now. The right wing is much harsher. I'm not quoting DeSantis, the liberals. Uh, and it's, it runs through the 70s as well, the reaction to the 60s. You take a look at the uh, the first publication of the uh, Trilateral Commission. That's basically Carter liberals, the staff the Carter administration, uh, mainstream liberals. Uh, their concern was what they called the crisis of democracy. Too much democracy. Hmm. Said the 1960s activism was bringing many groups into the political arena, pressing for their demands, what they call special interests, like women, uh, minorities, uh, workers, farmers, uh, all special interests, can't the population short. And they're they're just asking for too much. The state can't deal with that. So we have to have more moderation in democracy. In fact, Samuel Huntington, the American rapporteur in the group, uh, is trilateral, three, Japan, Europe, and the United States. Uh, Huntington's a liberal professor at Harvard, said the problem is that a failure of what he called the institutions responsible for the indoctrination of the young. Mm-hmm. That's why you have these kids out in the streets uh, protesting the Vietnam War and calling for women's rights and all that stuff. 
the universities, the churches are not indoctrinating properly. Okay. That's not the standards. No. This is a lift now. Yeah. Uh, and we have to improve the modes of indoctrination to have more moderation democracy. Well, that's the liberal voice. Jeez. You go over to the right, you get the standards. Right. But right. you'd recognize what the spectrum is. Yeah. That part about DeSantis and then the the liberal versus the um, conservative reminded me of something I had not actually uh, heard about until I was researching this discussion. And you said when you listen to these legislators and the governor try to justify this kind of revisionist history and whatnot, they talk about this being anti-American. Critical race theory is teaching people to hate America, hate themselves, hate America. Uh, Colin Kaepernick takes a knee in the field uh, during the national anthem, and he's anti-American. Can you talk a little bit about just that term of abuse? Because that's a specific, it's been used in specific instances throughout history, correct? It's an interesting term. Suppose you're in Italy, see, and you're criticizing the gov government policy. Does that make you anti-Italian? It's not called that. I mean, maybe people hate you. They think it's a terrible criticism. Call you all sorts of things. They're not going to call you anti-Italian unless they're on the fascist right. Then they might call you them. But in the United States, it's universal. Americanism, anti-American, these are common terms. Mm -hmm. They're only used in totalitarian societies. Try to find an exception. On the far right, you find them in other societies. Here are the other words. The concept anti-American is considered normal. It's one of a number of strange features about the United States. It's a very free country, the freest country in the world, but there's very sharp restrictions on what you can think. So I, I don't know of any other country except totalitarian states where the word socialism is considered a four-letter word. Your next-door neighbor is a socialist, so what, you know? Mm -hmm. In fact, you can be a communist and be run in parliament, you know? Yeah, right. In the right. United States, it's unthinkable. Yeah. In fact, it's even more interesting. It's not talked about much, but go back to the 60s. You may have read, you can, you're can. you not old enough to recall, I guess, but you can. You may have read that the uh, SDS was the main, so Students for Democratic Society. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. President of SDS, Paul Potter, I think it was 1965 or so, gave a famous speech, a presidential speech to the SDS convention in which he started by saying, look, it's time to have the courage to name the system. And he went on talking about naming the system. Huh. He'd never get the word out, but what he meant was capitalism. You couldn't say the word capitalism. It was too subversive. Wow. So at the left, you couldn't name the system. Hmm. It's really impressive indoctrination. And it's striking because it's in a very free society. Right, right. It's not by the use of force. Mm -hmm. You don't get thrown into jail if you say what I'm saying now. Actually, Orwell had an interesting comment on it. Everybody's read Animal Farm. Right. Very few people have read the introduction to Animal Farm because it was suppressed at the, at the introduction that was found decades later in his unpublished papers. 
in the introduction, he says, uh, it's addressed to the people of England. He says, England's a free society. This book is a satire on the totalitarian enemy. But you shouldn't feel so self-righteous, because in England, free England, quoting, unpopular ideas can be suppressed without the use of force. Mm-hmm. He goes on to talk about it. Mm-hmm. The most interesting comment is a good education. You go to Oxford, you just get instilled into you the understanding there are certain things that just wouldn't do to say. Right. You don't even think so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, driving down 995, I'll see these billboards for the election coming up, and it's so-and-so a true conservative or a genuine conservative or the only real conservative. Imagine if that was a liberal. Like, you would never see that. Like, the only genuine leftist in the race. Like, you know, it would never I – don't, I don't know where that became – that is the norm, and it's almost da- – you know, it's politically like suicide to call yourself uh, liberal, and the, the conservatives are – are touting who can be more conservative than the next. You know, it's it's per, fits perfect to what what you are saying. Um, if you don't mind, let's move to to the environment a little bit. Um, someone asked me uh, if you could put all the time, money, intellectual power we have available to us into one area, like one goal, one aim. What would it be? And at first, I thought. The environment is what popped into my head first, um, knowing that it's not as simple as the environment alone. There's culture, there's economic inequality, there's all these things going on. But recently, you made a comment for an environmental conference that we are at a unique moment in human history. Decisions made right now will determine the future course of human history if there is to be any human history. So how did we end up in this position where you would make such a strong comment about the the course of human history. I know there are other actors here, China, maybe South Australia, some European countries, but what, what say you about the U.S. Uh, role in, in bringing us to this you know, precipice, perhaps? Well, if you look at the U.S. role in the last hundred years or so, it's way in the lead in poisoning the environment. But among the developed societies, the U.S. is still well in the lead per capita in poisoning the environment. China has five times the population, so its total pollution is greater. Uh, And the United States is unusual in dragging its feet on this. The Republican organization, don't like to call them a party anymore, but they have, they're a denialist party, totally 100%. You see it right now in Congress. Biden had some inadequate but pretty decent climate proposals, the best ones ever, basically came out of Bernie Sanders' budget office. They were sensible proposals. GOP, 100% opposed. Ironclad opposition can't hear them. Joe Manchin played the game of pretending to be interested, but cutting back point by point until he said, forget it. These are proposals which might save the human species from destruction, which we're racing towards. Trump, of course, pulled out of the Paris negotiations. It's a party of wreckers. They don't care. Nothing matters except more wealth for the super rich, 
corporate power, we take power, that's all. That's the total policy. You take a look at and climate just sacrificed, who cares? Uh, that's the business ethic. You can read it in the Wall Street Journal editorials. It's, non- it's nonsense to worry about what might happen in 10 years. Uh, business is concerned with profit tomorrow and leave it to the market. That'll take care of them. Yeah. So who cares if the world goes up in flames as long as we make more money tomorrow? That's the capitalist ethic. But that run free, of course you did. Uh, there are sensible proposals that are feasible and could deal with a crisis, maybe. But they're not being pursued. We've known about these issues for years, but emissions keep keep going up. You know, like it's not it's not new to us. We've known it, and I don't know how to get individual people to think that thirty years from now is as important as tomorrow is. You know, for them, because even if we stopped right now, there's enough out there that they would take years for us to see any benefit, and it would be our kids or grandkids, and we don't always think like that. Like, we just want, you know, I don't know how to how to obviate that, and that's why I'm talking to you. You're supposed to have the answers. I wish I knew. <laughs> yeah. It's true. You're absolutely true. People just don't care. In fact, if you want a graphic illustration of that, there was a Yale University does regular polling on uh, attitudes on climate change. Uh, they came out with a poll a couple days ago, their latest. The way they framed it was they asked people, they gave people uh, 29 major issues and asked people, how do you rank them uh, with regard to your vote in the next election, the November election? which are the most important, the least important. Climate change was 24th. Wow. Among Republicans, among moderate Republicans, it was 28th. The the rest of Republicans, it was 29th out of 29. Wow. Amazing. And it's not that they don't care about their grandchildren. They don't believe it. It's a liberal hoax. Mm -hmm. It's what they hear from their leadership Mm -hmm. all the time. Listen to Fox News. Listen to the Republican leadership. Denialist. Yeah. Let's go back to your first question about inequality and uh, democracy. Yeah. Highly relevant here. You go back to 2008, not that far. John McCain was the Republican candidate. He had a climate plank in his program. Not very much, but at least something. Congressional Republicans were beginning to think about maybe a carbon tax, something. The Koch brothers conglomerate found out about this, launched a huge campaign, juggernaut, to drive Republicans out of this heresy. Bribery, intimidation, massive lobbying, and fake uh, AstroTorf turf operations. Mm-hmm. They all collapsed 100%. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ever since then, party is 100% denialist. Mm-hmm. When you get to Trump, it's extreme, but uh, sure. the rest of them are the same. Mm-hmm. Well, that's inequality and democracy leading to the end of the world. Yeah. It's not small. This is the end of organized human society, not very far off. 
thank you to the Koch brothers right. and the collapse of the Republican Party. Yeah. The Republican organization, I like that. Uh, so the million-dollar question then, right, where do we go? Um, you, you said earlier, I think we can see quite clearly some very, very serious defects and flaws in our society. And that quote finished by saying, which are going to have to be corrected by operating outside the framework that's commonly accepted. I think we're going to have to find new ways of political action. Uh, is it even conceivable for the U.S. to revert to something akin to a normal nation? Like, what are these steps? Uh, what is this action that's you're suggesting that's outside of our traditional framework? Well, first step would be to go back to our traditional framework. You go back to the period pre-Reagan, pre-Carter, really. It was a normal democracy. Okay. Uh, Eisenhower, for example was considered a conservative. He was very strongly new, pro-New Deal. said anyone who questions the New Deal doesn't belong in our political system. Anyone who questions the right of working people to organize freely, we don't want them in our system. Mm -hmm. He comes to the left of his Sanders. That was conservatism back in the 1950s. It was a kind of a regimented market. The Treasury Department worked there were no financial crises. There was no massive tax evasion. Deregulation, which came in with Carter, took off with Reagan. It was created a finance-based system, which is so massively corrupt that it requires constant state, massive state intervention just to keep it functioning. Uh, well, we see the results. That's just a bit of it. Uh, but the first thing to do would be to go back to trying to become a normal democracy. Incidentally, the same was true on other issues. So if you go back to 1980, the incarceration rate in the United States was within the spectrum of other societies, yeah. sort of toward the high end. But now it's about five times as high as other societies. Yeah, One index after another, the United States has gone off the spectrum. Mm -hmm. I mean, big health care, yeah. twice yeah. the costs of comparable societies, some of the worst outcomes. Uh, take mortality. The United States is the only country where mort mortality is going up. <laughs> I mean, it's the uh, United States is off the spectrum. Right, right. And it's very largely a result of the extreme power of the neoliberal class war, which has wrecked the society. And incidentally, that's not unplanned. Go back to Thatcher. Mm -hmm. There is no society, just individuals on the market. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's when you would draw the line, kind of that that particular period, seventies, early late sixties, early seventies, of when the plan started to actually go into into place. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So that would make this a unique time then. Okay. Because, you know, here, I can't imagine somebody, you know, Trump being elected, say, 50 years ago, you know, or 100 years ago or something like that. So I was going to ask you that, but you've already kind of answered it. Just, you know, where, where, if we could draw a line, you know, that made this time stand out, that's where it would be. So then the last lightning round here, do you have anybody that you think when you retire, we'll say when you retire, who's going to take over the mantle? Is there any, um, intellectual activists groups or people do you think that are doing will carry on your work and what you do could you anybody that you read and follow from the next generation coming up 
Well, actually, I'm a minor figure in contemporary activism. There are lots of great groups and fine people. Could list them, but they're all over the place. Okay. And they're having an effect. Mm-hmm. So, for example, take climate. Why did Biden have a fairly decent climate program? Well, it was because of groups like Sunrise Movement, which uh, young people got to the point of occupying Nancy Pelosi's office, demanding change. Mm-hmm. They didn't get thrown out, which was unusual. Mm-hmm. But the reason was they were supported by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, yeah. came in on the Sanders wave, yeah. came in with them. Mm-hmm. Capitol Police couldn't throw them out. Mm-hmm. Ended up with uh, proposals in the House and the Senate, which could be enacted. Mm-hmm. Well, that's how things happen. Mm-hmm. It starts with activism on the ground. There's plenty of young people doing it and others okay. all over. Things like teacher strikes, let's say. Yeah. In the red states, West Virginia and Arizona, did a lot of public support, calling for saving the public schools from destruction. You know, things like we find that all over the country. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, um, there aren't any secret answers to how to proceed. It's just the old style. You try to educate, you try to organize, you find the kind of actions that can carry you forward. Just got to do it. Mm-hmm. I talked about the Republican Party, but the door was open for them. The Democrats just disappeared. Yeah, yeah. In the 1970s, uh, the Democrats basically abandoned the working class, handed them over to their class enemy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Re- Democrats became a party of uh, affluent professionals. Yeah. yeah. People who just, uh, the kind of people who show up at uh, Obama's fancy parties. Right. Uh, Wall Street, that's the Democrats. Yeah. So nobody defends the work working people. So they drift into the hands of their class enemy. It means the Republicans who are their worst enemy mm-hmm. can now call themselves a working class party. Mm-hmm. Well, they screw them at every turn. At you know? every turn, sure. That's partly the fault of the Democrats. Mm-hmm. But that can be here. The Biden movement made a big difference. That's why the Clintonite party managers worked so hard to keep Sanders sure. and nowhere close to a nomination. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Kind of like what happened in England with the Labour Party establishment trying to destroy Corbyn because he right. was trying to make a, a constituent-based party uh-huh. that would actually work for the benefit of working people. Yeah, part of the Blairite labor establishment didn't want that. Yeah, yeah. Across the board by the Guardian, whatever. Mm-hmm. It's pretty much the same. Yeah. And he's written a lot about the environment too, Corbin. He's he's taken that you know in, into a, he's he's become pretty active on it. You do you said you don't do as much activism, but you you get a lot of uh, people asking you to do things like this, and you continue to do them. So you must still have a hope that something's gonna something's gonna change. You know, if you were, look back at yourself, I don't know when you started "quote unquote" activism, young, I'm sure. But if you look back at your 22 year old, 23 year old self, or your 33 year old self, and your 93 year old years of experience and knowledge, you know, would you what would you tell yourself? What would what would would you do anything different to fight the fight, or would you just keep pushing the rock? Recorder. 
Try to learn more. Try to understand more. Become active. Don't be fooled. There's no magic keys. It's always the same. You've been listening to an interview with Noam Chomsky, and I hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you did, please take a minute to like, follow, rate, and share the podcast in all the usual places. I want to thank Professor Chomsky for his time and Valeria Chomsky for passing on my interview request. It was an honor to talk to him as well as an inspiration. The idea that if he could tell his younger self anything, it would be to work harder really struck me. The man's worked pretty hard to make the world a more humane place for 60 or 70 years and probably will keep at it until they draw the curtain. If my efforts reach even a small fraction of the people he has reached, I'd consider it a success. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the interview, and I'll remind you that one of the purposes of this blog is to engage in public sociology, which tries to bring academic discussions out to the streets, so to speak. So please feel free to sign up for the blog and become a member, which simply entails creating a username and a password. Then you can comment after each post. At the very least, please feel free to email me your comments, and I'll be sure to respond. Finally, let me tell you that Billy Bragg is singing Not Everything That Counts Can Be Counted in the background. And if you're feeling so inclined, you can push the yellow donate button on the homepage. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at jr at oursociallandscape.com. And thanks for listening. There isn't really any room for dreamers If you have principles, that's nice The market isn't interested in value Except for those it can define as price All bow to the power of the market Till it throws up a different face If you're not white or male or compliant The system is designed to keep